Church of the Savior is how we, how we met each other, but uh, glad to be with you again this morning. So today's the final week in this 10-week series on the Ten Commandments, and these are the commands that God gave to his people and to all those who love him, and they are still valid today. And so uh, the series that we're going through has the commandment and then a New Testament correla- correlation um, kind of showing us that these things still hold uh, today. And as Jason mentioned, the first week, the commandments kind of break up into, four, into two different groups, right? Love God, commandments one through four, and love your neighbor, commandments five through ten. And so we are on the final one this morning. As we look at this tenth and final commandment, do not covet, let's read Exodus twenty seventeen. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not, not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. And then our series couples this with the commandment in Hebrews 13.5 where the author says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, commentators agree that this 10th commandment is sort of a summary commandment, right? It's the first commandment, and it's the only commandment that speaks to the heart rather than the actions, because what we see is that when covetousness is there, and we see how this commandment's written, we see that the other commandments, kind of the actions flow out of that heart. So adultery, uh, murder, stealing, false testimony, these are the things that flow out of a, a covetous heart. And what we'll also see is that covetousness is closely linked to idolatry, which are the, you know, the first couple of commandments there. So let's say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump into this thing. Lord, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not only given your word uh, to give us light and, and guidance in life, but also, Lord, to give us identity as a people, to, to form a new nation, um, with a constitution that is just and right and holy and good. And so thank you for that. And Lord, this morning we pray that you would be speaking your word, that it wouldn't be things that I want to say, but that you would connect with everybody here individually through your spirit, uh, and and that really your word would come through. In Jesus' name, amen. So Rick Warren begins his book, The Purpose Driven Life, with the words, It's not about you. It's amazing that a book that starts out that way could sell so many copies, right? It's not about you. And then he goes on and he says, the purpose of your life is far greater than your own personal fulfillment, your peace of mind, or even your happiness. It's far greater than your family, your career, or even your wildest dreams and ambitions. If you want to know why you were placed on this planet, you must begin with God. You were born by his purpose and for his purpose. So what do you think? Do you think as a country and as as individuals within the country, we have lost a sense of purpose? (laughs) I agree. I've heard it said that there's a rise in depression, anxiety, and even suicide And we certainly see that there's a rise in mass shootings and gun violence. And politics in this country has become more polarized than 
I've ever seen it. Uh, and I believe because people have lost their identities and purpose, and so they've attached their purpose and identity to political agendas. And I believe that a major contributing factor to all this is this idea that we've lost our purpose. We've lost our identity, our sense of direction as individuals. And so it's a strange thing I observe, right, as we tie our identities to name brands. And one of the strangest ones I've seen is like Yeti. You guys probably won't find this as funny as I do. But like people put Yeti stickers on everything. And I just find it so odd. Like you're attaching your identity to a thermos. And then oddly, I too want to attach to a thermos. The Yeti stickers look really cool. And frankly, Yeti represents something that I like, right? Outdoors, quality made, you know, freedom. So out of principle, I don't have any Yeti stickers on anything. But it's tempting. <laughs> but it's so bizarre, right? We attach our identity even to a thermos. Anyway, uh, but then again, you know, as I was preparing this and talking to my wife, um, I, uh, most of my t-shirts are brewer, you know, beer brewing <laughs> like places, right? Like breweries that we've been to. And, and so I'm okay wearing that. Not Yeti, but okay wearing brewery t-shirts everywhere. And if I were lucky enough or blessed enough to own a BMW M series, I would love to have, you know, associate with BMW M series. But what do you think? What are the brands that you associate with, right? Because I think we all do this, right? We like it. We're, we're fine wearing all kinds of name brands and associating ourselves with these things. <laughs> I think part of this comes out of this desire for identity and purpose, right? It's as though we're longing for a tribe to connect to. And so we've got the outdoors tribe. We've got the, the sports tribe. We've got the dog lovers tribe, the Penn State tribe, uh, many others, right? Well, we're going to examine this morning covetousness, and I also at the same time want to flip covetousness on its head because the command do not covet is a negative command, but the positive solution to that is that the covetous is, is to focus our covetous heart on true worship and the worship of the living God. So there's a negative command, but really the solution is a positive movement. It's a positive direction. And so we're going we're gonna to look at both. We're going to look at uh, what covetous looks like as well as the direction to move in. So uh, to covet is really, in some respects, a form of worship. It is worshiping a created thing which is lesser rather than worshiping the living God who created it, the thing you're, you're, we're, that we're looking at. And it was for purpose, uh, sorry, for the purpose of worship that God freed Israel from Exodus, if you or from Egypt in the Exodus. If you remember, right, he says to Pharaoh, I want to pull my people out so they can come worship me. And so in being freed, we are freed to worship. And so we're going to look at this. The covetous heart. We're going to look at four things. What does the covetous heart look like? We're going to look at covetousness in poverty. And we're going to look at covetousness in plenty. And then we're, finally, we're going to look at finding purpose. So what does it look like? Point one. 
What does it look like in poverty? What does it look like in plenty? And then finding purpose. What does covetousness look like? Covetousness is inherently myopic. It's kind of like drug addiction. Drug addiction is almost like an acute form of covetousness, right? A drug addict fixates on the drug. A drug addict, if you know, like if, if, if they're into pills, they know exactly how many pills they have. They know exactly where they are. They plan out when they're going to take them. And, uh, the, you know, relationships become secondary. Food gets overlooked. Covetousness is like this. It's like putting on blinders on a horse where everything else is blacked out and there's a singular focus and you, you can't see anything else. In Matthew 6, 22 to 23, Jesus says the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And Jesus in this passage in Matthew 6 is talking about the love of money. And he says that if your first love is money, then your whole life will be darkened by this singular focus so that you won't be able to enjoy anything else. Now, one nuance of the 10th commandment, similar to what we talked about last week with the 9th commandment, is that there's a real community focus, right? It's not necessarily about covet. It's not necessarily about desiring things in general. There's a community focus to it. Let's look at Acts 20, 17 again. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. It is not focused on wanting or desiring in general, but it's focused on what your neighbor already possesses. Because... It's an important distinction because the Lord often chooses to bless us and wants to bless us, sometimes more richly than we could even hope ourselves. And at the same time, sometimes he leads us through the wilderness. And we see that when we consider the Ten Commandments because the commandments are given twice. They're given, and that's recorded in Exodus 20, which we're reading this morning, as well as Deuteronomy 5. And in Exodus 20, Moses gives the commandments to the adults who are leaving Egypt and about to enter into the wilderness and a period of tremendous vulnerability. And then we also see in Deuteronomy 5, Moses give, gives the commands a second time to the next generation. And this generation standing on the edge of the promised land and standing on the edge of entering into great wealth. And so we see two different moments in history, but what we see is that the command is given both in poverty and in plenty. And we're going to look at both. So we're going to look at covetousness in poverty First, and this is our second point. When the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness in poverty, God says to them, do not covet your neighbor's possessions. And this is difficult to do, right? It's difficult to do when you're wandering through the wilderness. As, uh, when I got divorced from my first wife in 2010, uh, I didn't have any discretionary money at all. And in fact, from 2010 to 2016, I mean, I was living paycheck to the paycheck. And if any kind of bill came up that was like an extra $100, I had to pray <laughs> for, to, to pay for it. And God always provided. He did always provide like manna from heaven. 
But as much as he provided, I still felt vulnerable and exposed, uncertain about the future. And when I looked around, I mean, I felt like I was falling behind my friends. I felt like I was falling behind my neighbors. And maybe you are in a wilderness period. Maybe you feel vulnerable and uncertain at this time in your life. Well, the book of Hebrews was written to a people such as this. It was written to persecuted Christians who absolutely felt vulnerable and uncertain. To give you an idea of what these Christians faced, Hebrews 10.34 says that they joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. They were losing property because of their faith. And what's weird about this is that it seems odd then that if this group of people was willing to lose their property because of their faith, that the writer would have to say in 13 verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Why does the author say this when clearly the love of money is not motivating these people? And yet, what I do find interesting is that often God works this way. He takes away the things that we're relying on to retrain us to rely on himself and to retrain us so that we learn the lesson through the reality of his provision. We learn the lesson of his words here. I will never leave you nor forsake you. The agnostic intellectual, I think he's agnostic. I googled this. I th he sounds like an atheist when you read him, but I Googled it, and somebody said agnostic, so I don't know. What he, but Yuval Harari, okay? Yuval Harari is, a, is a, an intellectual who wrote two books, or well, he's written quite a few books, actually, but two that I have. Um, uh, Sapiens is, is one that has been very popular. I think Barack Obama recommended it. If you watch the news, a lot of times, you know, when they interview people and they have all their books behind them, Sapiens shows up a lot. I don't know. He, he's a well-known guy. And so I've been going, I read his first one, I'm going through his second one, and he says, um, as much as I don't agree with a lot, uh, he, he says some very provocative, helpful insights. And one thing that he says is that the corporation has replaced religion in the world. What, what religion did historically for people, uh, we, we fail to realize sometimes, and there's others I've read who, who indicate the same, that religion historically provided economically for the community as well. Like, like religious leaders were the governmental officials in, in many cases. But now the corporation has replaced that. The corporation is now the thing we look to and trust for our future, for our provision. And I think he's on to something. And I think it, 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 it's indicative even of the, the way that we sort of gravitate toward name brands. We think that money will provide for us and career is our savior. And this is, quite frankly, it's, it's broken worship. God has to reprogram us. Just as God reprogrammed the Israelites who left Egypt, he had to teach them that their food did not come from the Egyptians. Their food came from God. And that's why the wilderness was important before the promised land. The, the, the poverty was important before the plenty. So that the people of God understood that the plenty comes from God's hand, not from the Egyptians. 
not from the corporations. He's the provider. And career doesn't make my identity, and money doesn't provide security. Christ alone is our rock, and our Heavenly Father uh, provides for us. And so that's why, you know, the Lord frequently does lead us through periods of wilderness for this reason, to to shake us free, literally to set us free from idolatry so that we may have freedom, so that we can take the blinders off, so that we can enjoy life. And so if the Lord has you in the wilderness, ask him for relief. Ask him to take you out of the wilderness. And at the same time, as long as he keeps you there, remember, he does care about you. He does see you. He will provide for you. And the wilderness will not last forever. And so the wilderness removes covetousness from our, our hearts. And at the same time, God also provides plenty. He provides plenty, and this is our third point. Covetousness and plenty. When we have plenty, the command still stands. Do not covet. After 40 years in the wilderness, the Israels stand on the edge of the promised land, and God gives them this command a second time, do not covet, in Deuteronomy 5. And then in Deuteronomy 6, we get a picture of what they're entering into. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses says, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, listen to this, with great and good cities that you did not build. And houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. I mean, these people basically received an inheritance, and that is what the Bible calls it, but it's an inheritance from like a billionaire, right? Like, could you imagine if, I don't know, Bill Gates or some, you know, somebody, Elon Musk, I guess these days is the, is the richest, you know, if you inherited what they had, that's kind of what the Israelites are entering into. And it's in this instance that Moses says, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He says, when you have everything you need, do not forget the Lord. And this is, if we're honest, where many of us find ourselves today. I mean, we're on the main line. And even even if we have difficulty paying bills sometimes, We live in the land of plenty. We live in the land of plenty. And as Moses warned, we as a people forget our God. Many are calling America post-Christian, right? They said that about Europe for 20, 30 years now, maybe longer, you know, that Europe is post-Christian. They're calling America (laughs) post-Christian. And sometimes... You know, if I'm honest, for me, it's, it's harder to rely on the Lord when I have everything than it is when I'm in need. Because in need, you're kind of like, you're all I got, God. <laughs> but when you have everything, you know, it's just more stuff and more time. And it's hard to stay warm-hearted because, you know, you do the things, right? You give a tenth, you go to church, you do maybe a Bible study but you become increasingly removed from the real needs of people. We become insulated from that. And it's just harder to remain uh, clear on the purpose.
And when we think about like the serious issues like gun violence in Philadelphia and refugees from Ukraine, like it just feels like our giving is just a drop in the bucket. And so it's really difficult to feel like that purpose and meaning is in our lives. And so we struggle, right? We can struggle with that. And so the result is it becomes easier and easier for us to just focus on our own goals, like, right, set, keeping enough for retirements, uh, our retirement savings, or the next fun purchase. And before I know it, I spend my time daydreaming about things to accumulate. I want to have what my mainline neighbors have. And so how do we then heed Moses' warning in Deuteronomy 6? When the Lord brings you into the land, Moses says, take care lest you forget the Lord. So what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to escape and get freed from this covetous heart? How do we remember the Lord in the land of plenty? And so that's our fourth and final point here, finding purpose. Now, I do want to say, I really don't think God's message for us is, is one of guilt. I don't think he's trying to make you feel guilty this morning. I, I don't think that's the goal, right? He delights to give abundantly. In times of plenty, we shouldn't feel guilty. Rather, I think that we determine what we should give and then give it freely and joyfully. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So we do that. And as Donna said earlier, Giving is part of our worship, so we do that. We decide what to give, and then we can enjoy the rest. There's a strange irony in that the church tends to flourish under persecution while languishing in times of plenty. And so when we're in times of plenty, we can enjoy it, and we also must fight against becoming complacent, becoming numb. And we have to work sometimes to remain warm-hearted, toward the Lord and toward others. Because we have all we need, we tend to focus on what we want. We begin to lose sight of our purpose, and covetousness can oppress us. And I think that's why this rising anxiety and depression, right? Because we have everything we want. And we realize we're still not very satisfied. But eternal purpose overcomes the covetous heart. And we see this in the book of Haggai. All right, so if you know the story of the Bible, if you know the story of Israel, the Israelites entered the land of plenty, and after being there several hundred years, uh, they forgot the Lord, just as Moses had warned, and God sends the Babylonians, and they destroy Judah and Jerusalem and the temple of God, Solomon's temple. And they cart the people off to Babylon. The, ba the, the people are defeated, but after 70 years, God takes them back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. And in the course of this, uh, they become discouraged. They're rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and they're rebuilding the temple, but they become discouraged because they look at the temple and they remember what Solomon's temple looked like and they see the new temple and they think, it's really lackluster. <laughs> This thing does not have the glory that Solomon's temple, that, that we remember. And increasingly, they just, because they're discouraged about their purpose, they just start to focus on their own households. And Haggai comes along and 
chapter 1, verse 4, and he says, uh, is, it t- is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses, i.e., your, you know, your luxury houses, they're, they're making their houses real nice, while this, this house, that is the temple, remains in ruins? And I think today's church, I think we feel similarly. We feel discouraged, right? We remember the glory days of the church when everybody came, when churches were big and society largely identified as Christian. And we, we become discouraged, right, in this not only post-Christian culture, but also this post-COVID culture. And so we focus on our own homes. And sometimes we lose sight of God's leading uh, and God's purpose and, and fall prey to emotional numbness and de- depression and anxiety. And so our hearts covet the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And we're just looking for that shot of dopamine to make us feel alive or feel something. I mean, I do it. Shopping online. Beth will see me shopping. And I'm, I'm like ashamed. I'm like, don't, don't look at what I'm... <laughs> And yet God's given us a purpose to build his house, to worship. And so we are in a post-Christian culture. It's okay. It's okay. God's people flourish as the minority, persecuted minority, more than they flourish as the majority. China, I think the church is doing very well from what I understand, even though it's illegal in many cases. Church is not going to go back to the way it was. It's not. And it's okay. It's okay. God will preserve his people forever. And so the question is, what is this next season of the church going to look like? In what ways will God form his church moving forward? At this point, it's going to take some imagination. I mean, it, it does, right? We don't, we don't see it. So we're going to have to imagine it. And when we think about the glory and the beauty and the splendor of God's people, what does that look like? Um, We went to the Elevation Worship concert last night, and I was blown away, and I'll say something more about that. But the diversity and, like, all these people, local, local people, and I'm like, oh, yeah, the church is still doing very well. I saw these dudes. All right, I'll I'll take a quick aside because it was so impressed. It impressed upon me so deeply, and particularly the men, because I feel like men, you know, we don't we don't like to raise our hands. I don't. I mean, I feel uncomfortable with that, you know, or like showing emotion. I want to be stoic. And these men, you know, there is there is a guy here sitting in front of me who looked like a U.S. Marine wrestler, like probably, you know, I I wouldn't want to tussle with this guy, and then. He's raising his hand. He's like, you know, yeah. And then there's a dude, uh, like, looked to me, maybe Latino, and looked hard. I mean, he looked hard. Like, he owned the street. And, and he's raising his hand, and then a guy in front of him, a black guy in front of him who just looked swag, you know, like, just awesome. And he's raising his hand. I just couldn't believe the diversity. And these guys that, to me, looked hard. And they're raising their hands praising. The church, yeah, it's, it's full of sinners. And, uh, you know, we all have stories and we're all sinners. And yet the beauty 
of God's people. And sinners, that's who Jesus came to call and to save. And that's who he died for. And his blood makes us clean, right? Because on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for the sins of all his people. And it means that preserving the church isn't up to us. It's not up to you and it's not up to me. It's he's going to preserve it because he shed his blood for the church. And by his blood, uh, he's making us clean and pure. And so sometimes that means, making us clean and pure sometimes means taking things away. And sometimes it means adding things and material blessings. But it's not your work that secures you, and it's not your effort and my effort that makes the church pure. It's Jesus himself that makes the church pure. And so the question is, how is the Lord going to do that moving forward? And how will the Lord have us partner with him in our immediate context, right? With our neighbors, with our coworkers, the people sitting right next to you. How might 6-8 do church differently in the post-Christian, post-COVID period? Both individually and together corporately, what's it, what's it going to look like? And I can't answer that. I don't know, right? It, it takes the collective imagination, I think. But we're not going to be freed from our covetous hearts by trying harder. We're going to be freed from our covetous hearts by turning our worship to the true and living God. By focusing our attention and our energy, just as Jesus said, right? Like the eye that's focused on light is full of light. The whole body's full of light. But if it's focused on darkness, how great is that darkness? When we turn our eye to the Lord and to his purposes, to the thing most valuable, to the greatest desire, the thing worthy of greatest desire, uh, it fills us with light. And so how do we harness the power? You know, when I was there last night, I just kept wondering, how do we harness this power, right? The Elevation worships there, and you got, I don't know how many people, I don't know how, Leacora Center, how many people that holds, tens of thousands, and, and they're all worshiping, and presumably they're all within driving distance. They're all local. I mean, wh- how would that, the power of God's people, what could that look like to reduce gun violence, to give to give help through economic opportunities in a place like Philadelphia. I don't know, maybe music is a big part. <laughs> like that was an obvious thing to everybody except me. And, and so last night I'm like, oh, maybe music has a place <laughs> for you know, bringing people together. I mean, it d- I was really shocked. Um, I feel like with the... Uh, racial separation of churches, right? They're very segregated, at least in, the, in this area a lot of times. Um, and, and for me, personally, I always kind of felt like, well, the worship styles are so different, and that's a hard thing to overcome. And then last night, I see a very diverse crowd listening to uh, uh, one band and all worshiping together. And I'm like, huh, that, that theory doesn't hold. <laughs> uh, music can really bring us together. And, and maybe there's a place for that. Vineyard kind of started with music. And uh, I don't know. I'm just 
dreaming, you know? What, is, what does it look like to imagine? And so think about that, 6-8. I'm going to leave you with that. And so let's pray now for wisdom on uh, how to do this, right? H- guidance and wisdom both as individuals and as a church body. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you because you are worthy of praise. You are the highest, most glorious thing, (laughs) person uh, there is in the universe as the creator. All things, you have created all other things. Anything else that captures our attention, that glitters and is, you know, gold and shiny and gets our attention, Lord, you created that. Actually, you created us who created that, and uh, you are worthy of so much more. And so, Lord, we pray for revival in this city, in this, in this metro area. We pray that your Holy Spirit would come out and that we would turn back to a, an impassioned worship and that you'd set us free from the covetousness and the idolatry that just really just kind of reductionistic. So, Lord, set us free and also give us imagination and wisdom collectively, Lord. May your people rise up and may they see what's next. May they create new paths forward for your church, not not because we are capable, but because Jesus has bled for your bride. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.